couple of weeks further on, and there seems to be lots to talk about today, doesn't there? Yes, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly very glad to see there's a lot of local releases which we can canter through. Um, not yeah. all of them good, I'm, I'm sad to say, but right. we'll certainly talk a little bit about the... Uh, the Berwick um, uh, Film and Media Festival, and then we'll dive into the top ten and see what we can come up with. Okay, let's start with Anik Playhouse, shall we? And on Wednesday evening, 7.30, they've got The Legend of Barney Thompson, Certificate 15. Yeah, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's the directorial debut by Robert Carlyle, who also appears in a starring role. And I I think the main reason to see this film is, is just because it's good to see Robert Carlyle getting back on screen. Um, the story itself is not that great. I mean, if you're a fan of Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, particularly the Tim Burton version, you might get something out of it. Equally, if you remember the Monty Python sketch with the uh, the mad psychotic barber who wanted to be a lumberjack, I think you'll again see where it's coming from. There are rumours afoot, incidentally, that, um, you know, I know that there are various train-spotting rumours always bouncing around, but because we're approaching the 20th anniversary of the film... There are rumours that uh, Carlisle, Boyle and McGregor have buried the hatchet and are going to do another Irving Welsh adaptation together, which would be quite something. Oh, yeah, that was um, that was a film to remember. Yes, yes. The, uh, the whole baby crawling on the ceiling yes. and diving into the toilet and everything else. Indeed, yeah. yes. Thursday evening, Trainwreck. Well, which is nothing like as funny as it thinks it is. I mean, I quite like Bill Hader as a comedian. I remember going to see him in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs back in 2009 and laughing my head off. The problem is that he's being put against Amy Schumer, who, like a lot of ex-Saturday Night Live comedians, is playing it far too broad and far too obvious for it to seem like a character. Also, it's directed by Judd Apatow, who, I'm sorry, is a complete chauvinist. I don't care if it's got a female lead. It's very much a man's film. So I think it's, you know, it's got a few laughs, but it's still a pre-retrograde piece of work. Okay, on to Thursday, the twenty fourth of September at the Playhouse. It's going to be Manglehorn Certificate Twelve A. This is an odd little one. It's the latest from David Gordon Green, who started off his career as a kind of an independent darling, made a, a fantastic film called George Washington back in the year 2000. But more recently, he, he's become known for his mainstream efforts like Pineapple Express, Your Highness, and Sitter, you know, in declining degrees of quality. The story here is that Al Pacino, in one of his late period, I'll just play Al Pacino in a beard roles, he plays a reclusive key maker who is obsessed with his cat, and meets a kind-hearted banker, ha-ha, played by Holly Hunter, who starts to open him up a little bit. And, you know, on the one hand, it's good to see David Gordon Green going back to his indie roots, and uh, the problem is that, on the other hand, it's a very slight, very predictable story. And also, I've taken against it because it has a supporting role for Harmony Corinne, and if you are familiar with Harmony Corinne's work, you know, he's he's one of the most pretentious and self-indulgent filmmakers out at the moment, and anyone who says that his work after after Gummo is worth anything, needs to get their head examined. Fair enough. The following night is absolutely anything. Now, this is really sad. Um, it's the first film that Terry Jones has made since The Wind and the Willows, which actually wasn't that bad. And the first film to feature all the surviving members of Monty Python since Meaning of Life. And also the last role that Robin Williams shot before he tragically passed away. So you'd think it would be, it would be quite something. But it really isn't. I mean, the story revolves around a disillusioned schoolteacher played by Simon Pegg, who is given a power by aliens from outer space, played by the surviving members of the Pythons, to do whatever he wants. So it's kind of Bruce Almighty, but without the jokes. And, 
you know, again, interesting premise. I mean, there's kind of H.G. Wells' short story, The Man Who Could Work Miracles, in the background, which Bruce Almighty itself borrowed from. The problem is that it isn't as funny as Bruce Almighty, and actually it's just a really sad waste of British talent. Right, and then Saturday, and it feels like ages and ages ago since we previewed uh, Fantastic Four, but it's finally getting to Annick, Saturday the 26th at 7.30. Yeah, I mean, I think if, thinking back to when we were doing the movie hour week on week, we, we would always give a lot of time to Jamie Bell. I think we both think that he's a very talented actor. And I think that he does slot into the thing reasonably well. You know, he can still be recognised and still gives a decent performance under all the makeup and the CGI. The thing is that as much as I wasn't really a fan of the earlier Fantastic Four films, which were kind of shiny and just very innocuous, this tries to go the opposite way of being portentous. And People just need to accept that the Fantastic Four just aren't very interesting characters. And, and this film is it has odd moments where it comes together, but for the most part it's really derivative. So, a mixed bunch at the Playhouse, the box office number, of course, Annick 510785. Off to the Maltings in Berwick, and we start with the Berwick Film Society this Tuesday evening, 7.30, X plus Y. Yeah, not to be confused with the Coldplay album, of course. Um, <laughs> this, is much more, this is much more like it. I mean, um, Asa Butterfield, who you know, was the kid in Hugo, and you might have also seen him in Ender's Game, which wasn't itself that good, but he was very good. Um, he played the math prodigy who struggled with relationships, and he is chosen to represent Great Britain at the International Mathematics Olympiad, where he begins to explore the nature of love as a result of interacting with his competitors. It's directed by Matthew Meadows, based on the documentary that he made for Storyville on BBC4 called Beautiful Young Minds. And it's just a really tender and well-put-together drama, which does you know, play in the same kind of area that A Beautiful Mind did all those years ago in terms of, you know, whether there is some kind of formula for love and where the the kind of highfalutin nature of mathematics fits in with with concepts which are much more earthy and emotional. I mean, certainly if you enjoyed The Imitation Game or if you remember seeing A Beautiful Mind many, many years ago, because that's 14 years old, that film. Oh, what a I would great film that was. Yeah. yeah, I would certainly recommend checking this out. You know, it's a much smaller, more independently spirited vehicle than either of those, but it's a nice companion piece, and Asa Butterfield is a terrific actor. Right, Wednesday evening, and I saw a trailer for this one, and it looks absolutely bonkers. Absolutely anything. Well, we've already covered this, so, um, yes. yeah, we. I think it's. It's bonkers, I think isn't I can say if you're a, if you're a fan of the Pythons, you might want to check it out, but otherwise, it's it's not really. It's not really worth your while. Right. Thursday evening, Ant-Man. Which is fine. Um, I mean, I think we are getting to the stage with the superhero films, and Fantastic Four ties in with this a while, that we are, we are in danger of cresting the wave in terms of the kind of adaptation. Because you, you think back to the, the last wave of superhero films, and you had you know, the, kind of the, the back end of the Superman stuff and Batman in the late 80s and early 90s, and it, you know, People were really kind of excited by those films. And then by the mid-90s, you had things like Steel and Tank Girl, where they were trying to get all the lesser characters in, riding that sort of wave of public opinion. And it started to sort of fall away and die. And I'm just thinking, I don't know the Ant-Man comics very well. I think that there will be plenty of people out there who will see it just because they are fans of the comics. My issue with this is that it's okay but it's nothing like as good as it could have been. It was originally going to be held by the great Edgar Wright, but he left the production in you know, quite angry circumstances due to creative differences. 
It's ended up now being held by Pel- by Peyton Reed, who made the cult classic Bring It On, which I really enjoy. And when you look at the film, it is very haphazardly put together. There is enough, I think, in both the script by Joe Cornish of Adam and Joe and the central performance by Paul Rudd to keep you interested. But I think we are in danger very much of you know, mining this superhero comic theme a little too deep for audiences to stay with. OK, Friday evening, it's going to be Mission Impossible. We'll have more on that in a moment. And then mm-hmm. Saturday, it's Paper Towns. Which was the box office number one two weeks ago. Um, it's the latest from Jake Squire, who made Robot and Frank, which was a kind of interesting um, genre mix film from the author of The Fault in Our Stars. Uh, focuses on teenage neighbours Quentin and Margot, played by Nat Wolf and Cara Delevingne. Uh, the latter disappears and he has to track her down. I mean... I think when I reviewed this, I said that it's very much not a film for for people my age or or perhaps even your age. Um, But I think it's very much a film which plays to teenage heartstrings. And if you are under the age of 18 and sort of becoming acquainted with that sort of kind of relationship for the first time, you will get quite a lot out of it. Looking at the trailer again, the thing it reminded me of in a little bit is the last picture show. I mean, not on a narrative comparison, but just that sense of of kind of lingering innocence and wonderment, particularly in the performance given by Jeff Bridges. So, you know, I I think it will do its job for the audience which it's meant to be. I just don't think that we're either of those audiences. Yes, indeed. And the box office number for the Maltings is 01289 330999. But then a week on Wednesday, uh, the 23rd of September, is the start of the uh, Berwick uh, Film and Media Festival. I'm going to have a quick rattle through all of the films that are on show and then you're going to pick out a few highlights, aren't you? Yeah. What looks quite a fascinating programme, doesn't it? So it we start We start with Wednesday evening, um, which is Sorrow. Um, Thursday, 4 o'clock, La Fièvre. Uh, 7 o'clock is Salem Cinema. Uh, 9.15, Battles. Friday, the 25th of September, Vampire. I hope that's how you pronounce it, at 4 o'clock. Tangerines at 7 o'clock, Mercurials at 9 o'clock. Then on Saturday the 26th of September at uh, 12 o'clock, it's Archipel Granit de Nude. I hope I've pronounced that one correctly. No Man's Land at 1.30, Abdul and Hamza at 2 o'clock, Seamus at 3.30, Wargame at 5 o'clock and Medusa at 9.30. For you to pick from there. Well, I'm going to pick out five, and I've tried to to make these recommendations as varied as possible. Some of the ones that you've mentioned are short films rather than full features, so there's certainly a a good scope if you go for a couple of days to catch a wide range of things. I'll start with La Fievre, which I think translates as fever, um, which is a fascinating short about the Arab Spring, which contrasts um, the director's very hallucinogenic creative visions against the political upheaval in that part of the world and seeing one gradually overwhelmed by another. So I think that's an interesting look at a conflict which is still very much in the public eye. Um, Tangerines, you know, it reminded me a little bit of of Gods and Men, which is very high praise. You have this kind of humanist parable of a man who is trying to defend his tangerine orchard while war rages all around him, and it's very much a film about human dignity and, and solitude and everything else like that. It, it's really worth seeing. Um, no Man's Land sounds like an interesting documentary. I mean, um, Portuguese cinema hasn't really ever made a strong foothold in Britain for reasons that I've never really understood. I mean, we, we get a lot of 
of Spanish films over from the likes of Alfonso Cuaron and Pedro Almodovar, but Portugal's never really got a look in. And this is an interesting documentary uh, about a commando from the Portuguese army looking back on his experiences and touching on the rule of Salazar and everything like that. So, you know, it's a very simple but effective piece of work. Uh, the other two that I'll recommend um, is sort of tying to historical British cinema. One is War Game, which is a short from 1965, which, according to the program, was banned for 20 years. And it depicts uh, a hypothetical nuclear war in which uh, a nuclear blast goes off in Kent and people are living in the aftermath. So it's kind of, if you remember When the Wind Blows, that 1980s Raymond Briggs adaptation, imagine that sort of idea of ordinary people dealing with with an extraordinary tragedy, but shot in the style of the British New Wave, so early Lindsay Anderson, Carol Rice, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, those sorts of films. So I think that's worth seeing. And the other one is The Raft of Medusa, to give it its full title, which is based on the poetry of Simon Armitage and is also inspired greatly by an old Derek Jarman screenplay, which never got filmed. And if you've never heard of Derek Jarman, he is the guy who did the production design on Ken Russell's The Devils, which is one of the most extraordinary films of the 1970s. Still not available in its uncut form because it was so shocking. Um, he also did a fantastic adaptation of um, of Not Little Red Riding Hood, but there was another kind of werewolf-style film that he made in the early 80s, which is you know, still very much held up as one of the, the icons of the fairy tale genre on cinema. Derek Jarman is a fantastic British talent, and it will be interesting to see how his work and Armitage's have combined with this story of three people who are stranded on an island and desperately trying to, to be rescued. I think you should go and see those five. Right. It sounds an absolutely fascinating festival this year, doesn't it? Some really interesting films on offer. Hmm. And it's good to see. You know, we, we hear lots in terms of the, the film festivals in, in Edinburgh and the, the ones yeah. around the world, the major ones like Cannes and Toronto. And it's good that small little festivals like this are, are bringing this kind of unusual programming to... Yeah. to a part of the country which often has to sort of wait even for the big releases. So I, I think it's very encouraging and you should go and support him. Yeah. Unlike number 10 in our charts this week, Hitman Agent 47. Yeah, which is, which is rubbish. I mean, the big question with the Hitman film is why did we need another one? There was a Hitman film that was made in 2007 which particularly nobody went to see and which had nothing to do with the video game. This is apparently based on the same source material, but is equally incoherent and equally boring. So don't waste your money. Rather better at number nine. I went to see this on Friday night along with a load of friends. Uh, Guy Ritchie's um, production of The Man from Uncle. Um, does it recreate the, the series, the 60s? Possibly not. Uh, was it worth seeing? Absolutely great fun. Superb photography. Absolutely loved it. And uh, how they managed to recreate those scenes so well. Of ge real genuine 60s grime of Berlin uh, when the, the war was up. It was just, I, I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. Good. I mean, I, I will defer to your judgment on this. My concern very much when I reviewed it was that Richie wouldn't necessarily bring a lot of new stuff to in terms, to the existing material, but it sounds like that he's pulled it out of the bag. Yeah, and yeah, the, the guy who plays Ilya Kuriak in redefining the role, because I think it'd be fair to say Dave McCallum did it for um, Hollywood um, glamour. Uh, this guy was just a big brute. Yes. and. Not not the most subtle intelligence. I thought it was played extremely well. Uh, number eight is American Ultra. Yeah, this is a, this is a, an odd one, really. It's um, do you remember a film 
uh, I think it was last year, called Kingsman, the Secret Service, with uh, Colin Firth as a, as a special agent. No. Okay. Um, well, I saw that quite recently, and I, I quite liked it. And this, this, it's, this is like a sort of Kingsman light, as it were. The story is you have Jesse Eisenberg, he of the social network, and now you see me, and you know, gearing up to be Lex Luthor in the next Superman film. He is uh, a stoner who turns out to be a kick-ass sleeper agent, and he's in this relationship with this woman called Phoebe, and they get he gets woken up as being a sleeper agent, has to go on a mission, and she gets involved as well. You know, it's a half-decent premise, you know, sending up the whole teen stoner comedy subgenre with the spy thriller. The problem is that unlike Kingsman, which actually had a few little uh, moments where it completely subverted all the cliches of the Bond series in amongst all the blood and uh, violence, this just gets to a point where it just settles for the flesh and blood stuff rather than actually getting a chance to skewer a few of the cliches. I think if you're an Austin Powers fan or you like kind of modern stoner comedies like, for instance, Pineapple Express, which I don't, but that's beside the point, then you might get more out of it. But Settle for Kingsman instead, which is available on DVD and you can stream it now and it's worth seeing. Right, another not too great one at number seven. I lost the world to live reading the plot on this one. The Transporter Refueled. Which is rubbish. I mean, the whole point of the first three Transporter films, if you took Jason Statham out of those... They were essentially very retrograde, nuts and bolts, 1970s B-movies. The only reason they were successful is that Jason Statham um, was one of the... You know, he's often written off as just a kind of one-note performer, but he does have an understanding of his target audience and you know, the whole concept of man service, of people who just want to go to the cinema to see people take their shirts off and have a big fight. And I have no problem with that at all. You know, there's, a, there's a space for that. Um, the problem is that whereas Statham had this kind of knowing humor, which made the, the first three Transporter films go that little bit far over the top, so they actually became funny. By taking Statham out of it, you just make it the nuts and bolts vehicle again. I mean, to use another analogy, it's like the Bourne legacy. You had the first three Bourne films with Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass working together on the second and third one, which were fantastic and really had something to say about espionage and intelligence. And then you take David, um, Matt Damon out of it, and it just becomes generic, and this feels so perfunctory as a result. Okay, on to number six now. Um, brings back memories for anybody who used to play Pac Man. It's Pixels. And you should stick with the games if that's what you're interested in. I mean, I, I'm not an Adam Sandler fan at all. I think that, frankly, the plot of Space Invade, the game, has a lot more going on than the plot of this film. It's basically Battleship, but with different attacks. And it's not funny. To better places now, number five, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Which is a pleasant surprise. Um, the story follows a teenager who is forced by his mum in slightly contrived circumstances to spend time with a girl at his high school whom he doesn't like, who has been diagnosed with leukaemia and is slowly dying. Hence the title, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, Earl referring to the character's best friend. Um, you know, it starts out, particularly if you watch the trailer, as a very rote, mumbly teen comedy in which it's all sort of awkwardness and, and slightly hipstery dialogue. But once you get into it, it actually starts to blossom with the whole subplot about uh, uh, the main character and Earl making sort of parodies of mainstream films, a little bit like uh, in Be Kind Rewind with uh, Jack Black and Mustaf. And they sort of take that idea and, and do it from a slightly more sort of heartfelt angle, and it does become a genuinely sweet film. I mean, I, I don't think it's up with the level of something like Still Alice, 
But if you like the fault in our stars, then you'll genuinely enjoy this. And I was surprised by how nice it was. It does sound good. Uh, number four, um, and it's had a remarkably good uh, critical acclaim, hasn't it? Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. Well, it's clearly hitting that kind of nuts and bolts spot that you know, the action audience wants. Um, I just feel a bit disappointed that a series that started off in the hands of someone like Brian De Palma, you know, albeit father of substance, Brian De Palma, has kind of turned into something so generic. My advice is just save your money a little bit longer and wait for Spectre to come out. OK, number three, mixed opinions on this one, no escape. Yeah, which is kind of disappointing. I mean, I think on the one hand, it's nice to see Owen Wilson doing a slightly different kind of role to the normal sort of duffel-haired, slightly slacker character that he usually does in his comedy films. And I, there are good intentions behind, you know, this sort of claustrophobic B-movie. The problem is that it's got a very retrograde worldview. I mean, there's been a lot written in the in the film press about its depiction of South Asian people and, you know, I don't really want to get into that in too much detail. And also, despite the best efforts of people around Wilson, the characters are a bit one-dimensional. So I think if you're a Wilson fan and want to see him doing something different, then go and see it. But otherwise, you're not really missing much. OK, we have another animation at number two. This one seems to have got rather better reviews than Pixels. It's called Inside Out. Yeah, and there's a very good reason for that, because it's Pixar returning to form after a couple of, of wobbles. I mean, it's been in the top ten for absolutely ages, so clearly it's resonated with with families out there. The animation, as per usual with Pixar, is beautiful. And you know, even withstanding my comments about it borrowing from the numbskull cartoons, I do think it's a really interesting way to approach the issue of adolescence you know, in a, in a very unusual way. And I think Pixar should be commended for... You know, still having the bravery to tell this kind of story, even though they're they're a sort of massively bankable brand. So go and see it. Okay, and something a little bit grittier at the top. Number one, it's straight out of Compton. And I'm really glad to see this is doing so well. And when we reviewed it two weeks ago, I said that my the big clincher for me was that unlike uh, Notorious, which was a film about Notorious B.I.G., this actually explains the appeal of the rap music and the culture from whence it came. I'm not going to pretend that you'll come out as a converted rap fan as a result of seeing it, but I think it's very well directed, some very good performances, and it does explain you know, the appeal of that rather than just relying on the reputation of the people involved. OK, so ups and downs, uh, recommendations? Well, I think straight out of Compton if you're over the age of 18 and inside out if you're not. And the other one I would recommend is Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, because like I say, I was, I was pleasantly surprised by it. OK. Well, we did mention uh, Spectre, which is coming up not too far away, which uh, I suspect you're going to love everything about except one thing, aren't you? Yeah, there, there was news that was trending on Twitter earlier this week that Sam Smith is doing the, uh, the theme song for Spectre. And, you know, I will be the first to admit I'm not really a Sam Smith fan. I find his voice quite annoying. And I'm, I'm hoping that it's not going to derail the film because everything else I've heard about Spectre, it looks really fantastic. So I'll weather that particular one. But I thought to sort of take my mind off it a bit, we would play uh, a much better uh, recent singer doing her own stab at a Bond theme. Here she is, Adele and Skyfall. Right, shall we have a look at some of the uh, new releases then? Uh, and we've got Dylan O'Brien back, first of all, with the latest chapter in the Maze Runner franchise. This one is called The Scorch Trials, isn't it, Daniel? 
It is, yes. Um, I've not read any of the Maze Runner books. I don't know if you're familiar with the source materials in any great way. I have to say, it's probably not my scene. <laughs> Same goes for the two of us, then. So, for those who are completely uninitiated, as I was before I prepared this morning, um, it's the second Maze Runner film. The first Maze Runner film came out, I think it was early last year. Uh, the story is you have the lead uh, actor... Uh, Dylan O'Brien, who plays the protagonist called Thomas, and he has, you know, in this film, survived running through this incredible maze full of obstacles, a little bit like, I suppose, the uh, the kind of maze... Um, I was trying to think... I just lost my train of thought. Anyway, so he's got out of this incredible challenge rather like the one in The Hunger Games, which we'll be coming back to in a second, and now he is searching for clues about a powerful organization known as Wicked, pronounced like the drink but not spelt like it, I should hasten to add. And they go to a desolate landscape called the Scorch, which looks like a desert and like the maze is filled with some unimaginable obstacles. I mean, we're living in a period at the moment in in cinema aimed at young adults in which there are lots of second-rate franchises that have been born out of the success of The Hunger Games. And we've got the last Hunger Games film, Mockingjay Part 2, coming out, I think, in November this year. If I'm, no, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, I'm a big fan of The Hunger Games. I think that, you know, despite having not read the books, I think that both the films have done a really interesting thing in taking a lot of the, the kind of conventions of 70s dystopian science fiction and reapplying them to a modern setting with concerns about terrorism and commercialism and, and the way that young people are exposed to violence at an early age. The problem is with the Maze Runner and to a much greater extent with the Insurgent series, which has come along around the same time, is that they're attempting to do the same in terms of spectacle, sort of taking a bunch of young people and putting them in really dangerous circumstances and, and seeing if they can come through it. But they don't have the same level of subtext. Wes Ball's a perfectly adequate action director and he gets fairly decent performances out of it but i think you're much better off just waiting a bit longer save your money go and see the second part of mockingjay they'll probably be doing back-to-back -back screenings with part one if you didn't catch that the first time round, because all of this is sitting in the shadow of the hunger games and to a certain extent it always will i suspect the next one's more your scene i love the little poster from it grandma's rules one have a great time two eat as much as you want Three, don't ever leave your room after 9.30. It's called The Visit. Yes, and it's created a, a bit of a buzz, certainly in America, because it's it's new film by M. Night Shyamalan, who, when we were, when I was growing up, was, was hailed as the, kind of the new Spielberg. You know, this was the period when he was making Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and Signs. And then he kind of got full of himself and went off the rails with things like The Village and Lady in the Water, and now he's... Until up to this point, he's been a bit of a laughing stock. So the story is this time, it's a, it's a small little horror film in which you have a, a couple who go to visit their grandparents at this cottage and uh, are told the rules that you've just mentioned, and they begin to suspect that, um, that the people that they thought their grandparents are are not all that they seem. I don't want to say any more in terms of plot, because like a lot of Shyamalan's films, it kind of hinges on one or two specific bits of information, and if I were to explain those bits of information, then it would ruin the whole film. Here's what I would say. On the one hand, I like the, the premise of it. I mean, the, the poster very much harks back to Hansel and Gretel, 
And there is a lot of a kind of grim fairy tale underpinning to that, you know, with the sort of the, the little cottage in the woods and the, the young people sort of being trapped by the older people. And you know, that's, that's a nice twist on the kind of recent wave of home invasion films that we've had. And I also think the performances are pretty decent. The, the one reservation that I have, you know, compared to a lot of the American critics who've been praising this as Shyamalan's best work since Signs, I think that it shows its hand a little bit too soon and because it's such a small enclosed scenario, you know, it doesn't really know where to go once that information is out. And the third act is a little bit of a letdown. But it is the best thing that Shyamalan has produced in about five or ten years. So if you're a fan of his early work and you've been waiting absolutely ages for him to get back on form, I would still go to see it. Just don't expect The Sixth Sense or don't expect Unbreakable because it's not quite, he's not quite back up to that level yet. But it's encouraging that he's trying again. Okay, the next one seems to have divided the critics. Uh, It's called Legend. I'll just read one of them. Tonally incoherent, vacuous and structurally a bleeding mess. Is that one you go with? I'm kind of on the centre of this, actually. Um, So the the film is written and directed by Brian Helgeland, who is most notable as a screenwriter for writing L.A. Confidential, which is fantastic. As a director, he's been much more uneven. He directed things like Paycheck and 42, which were just nothing to write home about. This time around, he's, he's returning to, to the crime scene, only this time, instead of Los Angeles, it's London, where he's making a film about London's notorious 1960s gangland bosses, Ronnie and Reggie Cray, played on this occasion by Tom Hardy, doing a similar visual trick that they did with the Winklevoss twins in the social network in terms of digitally putting faces on people and, and split screening. And the first thing to say is that Tom Hardy is great. I'm, I've been a big fan of Tom Hardy since Bronson. I think he's, he's one of the best things about um, The Dark Knight Rises, where he plays Bane. I think he's just a really talented actor. The thing for me with Legend, though, is this. If you think back to the, the 1990 film called The Craze, where Gary and Martin Kemp from Spandau Ballet play the Kratrians. Do you remember that adaptation? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing, the thing about that was that it had a fantastic script by Philip Ridley, but the main performances by the, by the Kemp twins try as hard as they could. It couldn't live up to the actual story, and you just felt you were looking at people who were playing as the craze rather than being the craze. And the problem with... With, with Legend, is it's kind of the opposite way around, whereby Tom Hardy's performance is absolutely barnstorming, despite the fact that his version of Ronnie doesn't look a bit like Peter Hanrahan from the day-to-day, as some people have commented. But the actual script by Helgeland very quickly descends into cliché, and the Emily Browning character, who is you know, in love with Reggie Cray, isn't really given the amount of, of space that she needs to develop as a character. So... I think if you're looking for just, you know, a good vehicle for Tom Hardy, you know, it, he, he shines through and is clearly the best thing about it, but he doesn't have the depth of the Philip Bridley version. OK, we'll probably have to rattle through the last two. I suspect this may be your recommendation of the week, the re-release of the 1967 film In Cold Blood. It is my film of the week. Um, we've seen a couple of films in recent years, um, Capote and Infamous, which looks about the writing of Truman Capote's masterpiece, In Cold Blood. This is a re-release of the 1967 Richard Brooks film, which was an adaptation of Capote's novel and shot famously in many of the locations which are featured in the novel, including the Pennsylvania jail where the criminals were eventually killed. 
Um, it's a fascinating true crime story. If you've never read the book, you know, basically these two criminals who turned up out of nowhere and gunned down a family of four, and then there was the controversial trial which took place. You know, it really kind of struck a chord with America. And what the Richard Brooks version does is that it's very uh, precise, very clinical, goes through the book, and is very, very faithful to the source material. There is a little bit of fictionalizing in it with the reporter character, which some people have interpreted as a cipher for Capote in a sort of slightly sly, backhanded compliment to him, or possibly taking the mickey out of the way that he put that book together. I think if you're interested in true crime or you've seen either Capote or Infamous with Philip Seymour Hoffman or Toby Jones, they're both great, you will get a real kick out of seeing this. Okay, and finally we've got 40 seconds to talk about Irrational Man. And that's pretty much all we need. It's a new film from Woody Allen. You know, he still continues to make films at a breathless pace. The story this time around is that Joaquin Phoenix is a cantankerous old professor who moves to a new town and develops a relationship with a precocious young student played by uh, played by Emma Steele, I think her name is. And the, the problem with... Uh, there was a comment that Woody Allen made ages and ages ago about why he didn't cast himself in his own films anymore. And he said, because nobody wants to see a 70-year-old man getting off with Scarlett Johansson. And the thing is that he's still effectively doing that kind of thing vicariously in that the, the Joaquin Phoenix character is just a cipher for him and the Emma Stone character, that's the name I mentioned, is, is still him imagining that it's Diane Keaton or Mia Farrow or whoever you want to mention. It's a very nuts and bolts story, has a number of uncomfortably difficult moments considering a lot of the stories that have been in the press about Alan recently. And it's not up there with Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is a much better way to tell this kind of story. So, recommendations in Cold Blood and The Visit, I guess.